you to open up your Bibles again this morning to the book of Romans and chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We are continuing to work our way through this incredible letter and this wonderful gospel chapter. And this morning, I'd like to begin reading in verse 5, chapter 10 and verse 5, and to read through verse 13. And so if you would, look with me there. Uh, If you're using one of the Bibles and the seats in front of you, you'll find it on page 946. Looking at Romans 10, beginning in verse 5, we're going to read through verse 13. And this isn't in the old book we're reading. It is the very word of God. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today is Mother's Day, and that means it is a day of emotion for many people. Uh, For many of us, we come into this room this morning feeling gratitude for our mothers and for the way God has used our mothers to bless our lives. At the same time, there may be grief. Uh, Many in this room have lost their mothers. Some may have grown up in homes where their mothers were unloving or absent. And so there is a gratitude and a kind of joy in the hearts of some, sadness in the hearts of others, still maybe a mixture of the two for others. There is joy this morning for those who are mothers and grandmothers as they think about the children and the grandchildren that God has given them. There may be grief in the hearts of others because of children that never came or children that were lost in pregnancy or even children that are now walking in sin and rebellion. It can be an emotional day. And so if I could offer just one word of counsel here at the beginning of this sermon this morning, it would be this. Whatever you might be feeling, take it to Jesus. If you have gratitude in your heart, pour out that gratitude to Jesus. If you have sadness, cast your sadness upon him. If it is joy, he will rejoice with you. And if it is grief, he will grieve with you. Jesus can be your most intimate companion. 
He already knows you better than you know yourself. And he already loves you more than anyone. And so run to Jesus with whatever emotions you have and share them with the lover of your soul. And in whatever way you can, whether your mother is still living or has has gone, let me encourage you to honor your mother. Now, here in Romans 10, Paul has brought us back to the main theme of this letter. Uh, So much of the opening chapters of this book were about the gospel and the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And now Paul has brought us back squarely to that truth. What we have seen is that all people need to be saved because of our sins. And we need to be saved from a righteous God. Because we are unrighteous people. He is holy. We are sinful. And this God has loved us so much that he sent his son to die for sinners. And Jesus has done everything necessary so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All we are called to do is to believe. This believing includes accepting certain facts to be true, like the fact that Jesus died, the fact that Jesus rose again and now reigns as Lord over all. But saving faith is more than just accepting facts. It's trusting in the Jesus that those facts tell us about. Saving faith is entrusting your soul into the hands of Christ, believing that he is able and willing to safely bring you into heaven. When we call on him to save us in that way, he saves. And it is our joy to confess that faith. And to confess Jesus as Lord to the world in all the many ways that we described last Sunday. But here's the thing. We know what this usually looks like for adults. We have many examples of adults being converted in the pages of the Bible. We see how someone comes to accept the truth of Christ and how that truth changes them. And he or she becomes a new creation, a new person. We picture Zacchaeus, this man as a tax collector, swindling people. And then he believes on Christ and he promises to repay everyone whom he took advantage of. He's a different man. We see the disciples themselves transformed into bold men of faith. Once their eyes are open to the truth of who Jesus is as the risen Lord. We see Saul of Tarsus, that great persecutor of the church, become Paul the missionary, the great planter of churches. In the pages of the Bible, when adults come to Christ, there is a marked change in their lives. There's a change in their priorities. There's a change in their attitudes. There's a change in what they love. There's a change. And we also see clearly in Scripture how adults confess that they've changed. They do it first through baptism. It's not the only way that they confess their faith, but it is given as the first. 
As we said last week, it is uh, our crossing of the Rubicon. It's our line in the sand moment where we declare to ourselves before God and publicly that our allegiance has been given to Jesus Christ. And over and over again in the pages of the Bible, we hear the call, repent and be baptized, believe and be baptized. So we have belief, which is how we're saved, and we have our profession of faith, our good confession for the world to see where we stand. So we know what this looks like for adults. But what about children? Here's a question that has vexed many Christian mothers and fathers throughout the centuries. How can I know if my child has come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? This is the believing part, right? This is the faith part. We know from verse 13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not just people over 18. Not just people over 13. Praise God. He often saves little children. David appears to have been a believer from his youth. Timothy appears to have been saved while he was still young. John the Baptist is a really unusual case. He seems to have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. The Bible and our experience tell us that God saves children. But how can parents know if their children are saved? And then there's the confessing part. It's one of the questions I hear most often as a pastor. How do I know when my child should be baptized? We have several examples of adults coming to Christ, believing on Him, and being baptized in the book of Acts. But we don't have any examples of children. None that are clear. So what do we do with that? And when is the right time? These are important questions. And my goal this morning is to help us apply all that we've been learning here in Romans 10 to our children and to our grandchildren, to our parenting and to our grandparenting. And I pray that some of the scriptures and the principles shared here this morning will be of real help to families and to all of us. So our outline is very simple. We're going to push through it. It's three headings. Number one, the priority to hold fast. Number two, some pitfalls to avoid. And then thirdly, some principles to follow. Priority to hold fast. Some pitfalls to avoid. Some principles to follow. Here we go. Number one, the priority to hold fast. There are many aims that we might have in our parenting or in our grandparenting. In fact, it is good for parents to have goals. Our parenting should be intentional and well thought out. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, says the book of Proverbs. So what are your plans? What are you aiming for in the influence you are having on your children? And if you're here and you're not a parent or a grandparent, think about the other children you interact with. Do you have intentional Interaction? 
Do you have something that you want those kids to come away with as they interact with you? As parents, yes, we want our children to receive a good education. That is important. The wise prefer knowledge over gold. We also want our children to have a good work ethic. It is those who are skillful in their work who will stand before kings. A lazy child is a disgrace to his or her parents. We want our children to be moral and principled and people of integrity. We want our children to grow to be adults who are trustworthy and honest and kind. And in our day, we may just want them to have common sense. And yes, certainly, we want our children to be happy. But above all of these things, there is one priority that we must hold fast to in our parenting. And that is the priority of pointing our children to Jesus Christ and everything. In all things, Jesus Christ is to be preeminent, especially in our parenting and in our grandparenting. If our children have lots of knowledge and a great work ethic and live principled lives, but they do not know Jesus Christ, everything else is rubbish. If we want our children to be truly happy, and not just happy in this life, but especially happy in the life to come, then Christ must be the source of all their happiness. He must be their all in all. It's interesting, the New Testament actually says very little about parenting directly. But what the New Testament does say is very important. It says children are to be raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, Christ the Lord is to be at the center of our parenting. Our kids are not to be trained according to our ideas. Our kids are not to be trained according to the ideas of the media. Our kids are not to be trained according to the ideas coming out of the universities or the self-help section in the bookstore. Our kids are to be trained according to what Jesus Christ taught. His discipline, His instruction, that's what matters. As we're helping our children understand a thousand different realities, we must always be coming back to this question. What does Christ say about this? As we are helping our children reckon with a thousand different situations, this must always be our default response. Let's take that to Jesus. Let's pray about that. Let's put this situation to the light of Scripture. As parents... As grandparents, as uncles, as aunts, 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 you choose. Our lives should always be arrows pointing up to Jesus Christ. Since it is Mother's Day, I have been thinking about my own parents this week. And I have godly parents. They married quite young while they were still in college. And I came quickly. I was born a year and a half into their marriage. My sister came along two years later. And I am sure that when my parents look back on their years of parenting while we were in the home, they probably have some 
regrets, and I know they have some regrets because they've shared them with me. My own parents have grown so much in Christ since those days. They have told me things they wish they had done differently. And I can now relate as a parent myself because I feel how far short I fall and what I had always hoped I would be as a dad. But I have wonderful parents. And above all, I can say this about them. They pointed me to Jesus Christ. They were faithful in making sure that from my earliest years, I heard the name of Jesus Christ. And I heard the gospel story. And they made sure I was familiar with the Bible and how to get around in it. And that I treasured it. They taught me to pray. My parents, especially in those early years... They were dirt poor. We had no money but silver and gold they could not give to me. But what they gave to me was a million times better. They gave me the gospel. And they couldn't make me believe and they couldn't change my heart. Only God could do that. They gave me the gospel. They helped me to know that I was a sinner. And they taught me that knowing Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure of all. And I simply want to say, I wonder if there are any of us in this room as parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles, even older brothers or sisters, who might need to do some reprioritizing here. When your children are around you, do they come away from you with a higher view of Jesus or a lower view of Jesus? Do they come away from you with a, with a higher view of spiritual things or a lower view of spiritual things? Do they come away from you more worldly or more godly? What kind of influence are you having? Do they come away at least knowing that you treasure Jesus Christ and that he means everything to you? Surely we want our children to know that nothing could ultimately make their mom or dad happier than to see them walking with Jesus. Children, do you want to honor your mother this morning? Do you want to honor your parents? Walk with Jesus. Trust Jesus. Follow Jesus. Love Jesus. This is what Christian parents want for their children more than anything else. Amen? And so pointing our kids to our Savior in everything must be the priority over everything else. Number two, some pitfalls to avoid. Some pitfalls to avoid. When we consider our children and our deep desire for their salvation, we must be careful not to fall into these snares. Number one, we must beware forgetting that your child is a child. Beware forgetting that your child is a child. I know there are people who are going to disagree with me on this, but as I understand Scripture, this is true for me. It frankly breaks my heart when I see parents urging their three-year-olds and their four-year-olds to make decisions for Jesus Christ. And I think it is tragic when a pastor baptizes children so young. Because we have no record of any such thing anywhere in the entire Bible. 
Not even until 100 years ago did that become a practice found among churches of God. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard the same testimony from people of my generation. Well, when I was really young, I prayed a prayer and I got baptized. And then later I became a teenager or a college student. And and that's when the gospel clicked for me and I really got saved. You see, choosing to be a disciple of Christ is a huge life-altering, meaningful decision. And it is a decision. And there's no one in this room more of a Calvinist than I am, I promise you. But it is a decision. It is a decision that requires us to count the cost and to understand from the beginning that following Jesus means taking up our cross and being committed to His people and being committed to His causes and being willing to endure mockery and persecution for His name. And frankly, when people realize what following Jesus means, only the Holy Spirit can give somebody true faith in Christ enough to want to make a decision like this. But when we pressure young children to do this, We aren't leaving room for the Holy Spirit to work. A four-year-old cannot count the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ any more than you would have your four-year-old choose whom they're going to marry. This is the bigger decision than that one. And far too often, decisions made while children are very young prove faults once they are older, and their baptism becomes a nice picture for the family photo album, but holds no real life-changing significance for them. In centuries past, when infants often died in infancy, parents feared for the souls of their children. They wanted some way to ease their own consciences, and so they bought into the idea that if they sprinkled their infants while they were young, then even if their infants died, they would be saved and go to heaven. Well, today, many Baptists often do the same thing. Little children, for the sake of their parents' consciences, are being urged towards baptism and professing faith in Christ before they even understand what those words mean. And I'm simply saying that it's unbiblical and I think it's unwise. What does the Bible tell us about children? It tells us that they are immature in their thinking. You know it. It's in the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Paul says that there is a difference, and you know this, that there is a difference in the thinking and the reasoning abilities of children and the thinking and the reasoning abilities of an adult. And that true maturity is putting away childish thinking and childish reasoning. So should the decision to follow Jesus be one that comes from childish thinking and childish reasoning? Or should it at least be the decision of one who is growing into adulthood? Why is it that we never once see a child called a disciple in the pages of the Bible? 
The Bible also tells us that children are unstable in their ways. Paul makes this comparison in Ephesians 4, saying that we as Christians are to grow up in Christ and to not be like children. And so he's using children as an example of immature Christians. And he says that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. In other words, in other words one mark of children is that they do not yet have a firm foundation But like a boat without an anchor in the midst of many winds, they get tossed from one idea to another, from one attitude to another. They are blown this way. They are blown that way. They are still very moldable. One minute they think this, the next minute they think that. Even into the preteen years, we see the temptation for our children to think and act one way around this group of people and to think and act the opposite around that group of people. To put it bluntly, children are more easily manipulated by their circumstances and by their emotions. The Bible also tells us that children are easily deceived. Uh, Paul says they can be taken in by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Here's a book I highly recommend. It's by Dennis Gunderson. It's called Your Child's Profession of Faith. And he pointed out how we often hear stories of children being duped by people who want to hurt them or abuse them. In fact, just this week, uh, maybe you saw it, there was a, a guy with a van out in Moorhead, and he was luring children into his van with candy. The truth is, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and their powers of discernment are not yet sharpened. And so the Bible acknowledges what we already know. Children need time to grow up. This is why in the Old Testament we see age requirements just like we have with our children. Uh, Gunderson points out four. In the Old Testament, it was adults 20 years old and older who participated in the census and paid taxes. Going to war was for adults 20 years old or older. Punishment for certain sins came only to those who were 20 years old or older. And perhaps most important for our discussion, you had to be at least 20 years old or older to make certain life-impacting vows before God. Now, I am not saying that we should wait till someone is 20 for them to profess their faith. But I am saying that that is far more in keeping with the pattern of Scripture than the opposite end of having children profess faith at very young ages. Don't forget that your child is a child. Second pitfall to avoid is this. Beware substituting actions for genuine faith. Beware substituting actions for genuine faith. Let me be as clear as I can again. God really does save children. And often he will give children a new heart even from a very young age. The issue is not when does God save. The issue is how do we discern that our children have been saved. And one error we can fall into is the error of trying to take the easy way out. Rather than looking for the marks of genuine faith, which can sometimes be difficult, since many of our children are being raised in Christian homes and might be Christianized without being Christian, 
we might be tempted to pin assurance of salvation on some work that they do. In this case, it is mom or dad or both wanting to have some assurance in their heart that their child is saved. And so they tie that assurance in their heart to something the child does. If my child prays this prayer, I can know they're saved. If my child gets baptized or is added to this membership role or signs this card, then I can have some assurance that they are okay. Brother Mike shared with our Sunday school class last week how hard it was in his experience, and it has been the same for me, to hear senior adults whose adult children are living in obvious, blatant sin without any regard for Christ, declare that these grown children are still okay because when they were young, they prayed that prayer or they walked that aisle. Friends, it doesn't take a miracle of the Holy Spirit for someone to pray a prayer or walk an aisle, but it does take a miracle of the Holy Spirit for someone to be saved. We are to call our children to faith, not to some work. What have we been learning here in Romans 10? What does Romans 10 here remind us of again and again? That salvation is by faith. By believing with the heart, one is justified, made right with God. If we want real assurance, bona fide assurance, that our children are going to heaven, we must look for evidences of faith. Beware substituting actions for genuine faith. Now, those first two pitfalls are all too common among many conservative Christian parents, especially here in the southeastern U.S., but this third pitfall might be the most common overall. Beware neglecting the soul of your child. Beware neglecting the soul of your child. This is the wrong response to what I've shared so far. Do not say, well then, If God must be the one who saves, and if it's difficult to discern true faith in a child growing up in a Christian home, and if there's no biblical evidence for children becoming disciples, then then I guess I should just leave well alone enough and, and, and focus on other things. Not worry about spiritual things with my children. Let me, let me teach my kid to throw a ball. Let me teach my kid to play the clarinet, and we'll leave the Jesus stuff to church. By the way, certainly teach your kids to throw a ball. Certainly teach your kids to play a clarinet. (laughs) Those Those are good gifts and wonderful gifts from God. But we must not fail to pay close attention to the souls of our children. Even if for years we are left in a period of wondering, is my child saved? It, you know, it seemed like on Monday he had a wonderful heart for Christ. And then on Tuesday, the opposite. On Wednesday, she was acting this way. And I just can't tell, is my child a Christian or not? Even if we're left wondering for years, still we must keep pointing them to Christ. Urging them to believe on Christ. Helping them to understand the Bible. And helping them to understand what Christian living looks like. What good is it for our children to excel at everything in this life and then die and go to hell? On the last day, it will not matter how well your child plays the clarinet. Or how well they throw a ball. And how many parents on the day of judgment will know the weight of having given their children many, many good things 
but having omitted the one thing necessary. Let's make sure we're not neglecting the souls of our children. Let's make sure we're giving them the gospel. And I'm running out of time, so we're going to cover our third heading as quickly as possible. Some principles to follow. Here they are. Some principles to follow. First, teach your children the law. Teach your children the law. The commands of God, the commands of Christ. Isn't it interesting that almost every word spoken directly to children in the New Testament is a moral command? When we find Paul writing to children in a church, he doesn't say, and children believe the gospel. Instead, what he says is, Ephesians 6.1, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. In other words, the way to lead our children to salvation is to begin by giving them the commands of God. We're to raise them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And in this way, they will learn the goodness of God. In this way, they will learn the goodness of His ways. And they will also begin to learn for themselves their need for a Savior. Folks, we live in a culture where parents are all the time far too tempted to make excuses for their children, to lessen the standards for their children, to take away the rules from their children because they just want their children to be happy. And too often, mom and dad just want Johnny or Sally to be their friend. You are not doing your children's souls good if you don't give them the pure commands of Jesus Christ and hold them accountable because they need to see how far short they fall. If you want them to be saved, they must first be beaten down by the law in order to be raised up by the gospel. Gunderson says, learning righteous conduct should be a predominant aim for a child. We teach our children line upon line, precept upon precept, in the hope that as they learn the breadth of the word of God, they will not only learn the commands of God and the ways of righteousness, but will also learn to the core of their inner being the experience of intense frustration which is brought about by trying to walk in the commands of God. Childhood, he says, is the best time to learn this. And I agree. Now, Herman, remember Romans 7 and the months that we spent in Romans 7. Remember how we saw there that God uses the law to bring people to salvation. Spurgeon said, if you want to win somebody to Christ, give them 90% law, 10% gospel. Because until they have felt the burden of the law, Christ will not be glorious to them. If you want them to love Christ and savor Christ and know the joys that only Christ can give, you must prepare them for Christ. And preparation for Christ comes through the law. Until our children come truly to know and feel the weight of struggling with their inability to do right, they will never really appreciate the one who came and fulfilled all righteousness for them. Second principle to follow, look for evidences of true faith. Look for evidences of true faith. Certainly, if a person has been saved, they should be able to articulate the gospel. It does not mean 
that your child will necessarily use Christian language like justification or propitiation. That doesn't mean they're suddenly going to have mastered Christian dictionaries. But at the age at which they are, they should be able to articulate that God is good and that we are sinners and that Christ died for sins and that whoever repents and believes on him will be saved. This is what I look for when I talk to somebody who's coming to our church for membership. I I ask them about how do you understand the gospel? And I'm listening for four things. Do they know anything about God? Do they know anything about man? Do they know anything about Christ? Do they know anything about the right response? And I want to hear something about the holiness of God, something about the sinfulness of me, something about how Christ died for sins. And I want to hear something about how repentance and faith is the way of salvation. They can't articulate that, then they don't yet have um, the meat (laughs) to be trusting in to be saved. Another evidence of true faith will be love for Jesus. Maybe your child will suddenly have a new interest in wanting to read the Bible more. Maybe you will see that your child finds new delight in singing praises to Jesus. Maybe you'll stumble upon your child praying at a time of their own choosing because they wanted to pray. If faith is real in their heart, there should be some evidence of them loving Jesus. There should also be a basic heartfelt desire to obey Christ because this is the nature of true repentance. If your child has truly been saved, you should see them growing in a desire to do what is right Because it pleases God and not just because it pleases mom or dad. Finally, another evidence of true faith is genuine grief over sins committed. Our kids will often get upset when they've done something wrong because they've disappointed mom or dad or because they know the punishments that's coming. But a mark of real faith is that our children begin to grieve when they've done something wrong because of the wrong itself. And because they know that it's against God. It's not just fearing the the punishment. It's grieving the wrong and wishing that they could be better. All right. Third principle to follow is this. Help your child count the cost. Help your child count the cost. So as your child is getting older, as your child is able to reason in this way, challenge them on their faith. So one of the questions I usually ask teenagers when they come to me about being baptized is this. Are you ready, should Jesus call you to do so, to go anywhere that he would ask? Would you leave your family behind? Would you leave your friends behind and go to the jungles of Africa or the war zones of the Middle East if that's where Jesus wanted you to go? Are you willing to endure mockery? Are you willing to be made fun of? Are you willing to lose your friends if that's what following Jesus means for you? Ask those kinds of questions to your children. And related to that, read to your children stories of Christian missionaries and martyrs of the past so that they will see that sometimes becoming a Christian requires great faithfulness and radical commitment, but that Jesus is always faithful and he's always worth it. And then finally, a fourth principle to follow is to pray for your child. 
Pray every day and pray often. Call your child to faith. Teach your child what they need to know. Encourage your child. Love on your child. Discipline your child. But in the end, pray for your child above all else. That God would bless your efforts to see their soul saved. And I'm done. Except for this very quickly. But Justin, what about confessing the faith? What about that step of being obedient and being baptized? Well, friends, as far as I can tell from Scripture, that's where your responsibility as a parent ends. Because nowhere in the Bible do we see parents arranging baptisms for their children. And nowhere in the Bible do we see parents bringing their children for baptism. People bring themselves to follow Christ. Our children doesn't have a set in stone minimum age for baptism, but we do believe that the person needs to be old enough to truly know the gospel, old enough to have really counted the cost of this decision, old enough so that when they are baptized in those waters, there is meaning there, there is significance there that they will hold to for the rest of their lives. And we do believe that it must be completely their own decision before God. That when they are ready to draw that line in the sand and to declare to themselves, to the world, and even ready to declare to mom and dad that they are ready to follow Jesus as Lord no matter what it means, then it's them who should come for baptism. We can encourage them. We can root them on. We can make sure they know that baptism is important and what it is, but they must be the ones who come. Young people in this room, We are praying for the day when you will be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it can't be something that you do to please mom or dad. You must do it because you have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you love him of all else and you're ready to follow him no matter what the cost. May God give every one of us the grace every day to follow Jesus no matter what the cost because he's worth it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.